doing. If you would turn to Luke chapter 23, please. Luke 23, if you have your Bibles. If you're joining us for the first time online or here, uh, we are journeying through the gospel of Luke and it's just so fitting that this is where we are in the text as we've moved through this narrative. There are four gospels in the New Testament. Each one of them is never intending to write an exhaustive biography on Jesus. John even tells us there, there are so many things that I could have recorded, but I didn't. But they are recorded for a theological purpose. And Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentile showing that this Savior is not just a Jewish Meshua Savior. It's for all people. And we left the scene in 23 with the crucifixion on Good Friday. And now we're looking at the burial and the resurrection. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and indeed we rejoice. That tomb is empty and our Savior is at your right hand interceding for us at this very moment. And we thank you that we have a king of kings and a lord of lords. And in a world that's spinning out of control, we know you're in charge. You know the end. As was prophesied of the resurrection, it's prophesied that your son will return. And we thank you. Guide us as we go to the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The crucifixion scene leaves Jesus alone. Oh yes, there's the centurion that professes that he's innocent. There's the thief who claims, yes, I believe, forgive me for my sins. There's the women that are at the foot of the hill observing what's occurring. But for the most part, Jesus is left alone. And we see this scene in chapter 23, verse 50, that there's someone who's willing to step up and help. It says, now there was a man named Joseph who was a member of the council. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish Congress of the first century. If I'm making up a story about Jesus being raised from the dead, it's going to be a disciple or a family member who comes, grabs the body, not a member of the, the squad that had him executed or desired to have him executed, the Sanhedrin. But there's this guy named Joseph. And notice what the text tells us. He's good and righteous. He's not consented, verse 51, to their plan and action. He was from the Judean town of Arimathea and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock where no one had yet been buried. There's no confusion on whose body is in the tomb. There's only one. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had accompanied Jesus from Galilee, they're mentioned in verse 49, followed. They saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. We see here a man named Joseph. And we're, we're told several things about him. He's mentioned in all of the gospel writings uh, he is a witness, first and foremost, it says, to Jesus' death and burial as a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, according to earlier in Luke, we're told that the Sanhedrin, that 72 men, they were unified in their decision to present Jesus to Pilate. 
So you go, is there a mistake here? Well, anyone who knows anything about boards, 72, you got a smaller group who's making all the decisions, right? Whether Joseph was even present at the uh, hearings, we, we could debate. We don't know. But certainly he is exempt or ex excluded from where the main line leadership is of the Sanhedrin. He's not the only one. Nicodemus will also join jo Joseph. Luke does not mention this, but the other gospel writers do. And the two of them will bury Jesus' body. It's interesting, later in Acts, we're told that a whole host of priests believed in Jesus as the Messiah. So there's a movement that's going, even though John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple or follower of, of Jesus secretly. <laughs> and we'll talk about that in a minute, but he's also noted as good and righteous. He's not the first person noted as such in the narrative. We can go all the way back to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, or we could mention Simeon and Anna in the temple. They were all identified as righteous. There's this long line of people who have adhered to the things of the Lord. We're also told he's from Arimathea. That's important. Why? Because Joseph is the second most common Jewish male name in the first century, which Joseph are we referring to, right? So it's for clarity. It's like Mary Magdalene. Uh, that's not her last name. She's from Magdala. So it lets you know which Mary. This is Joseph, oh, from Arimathea, a town about five miles north of Jerusalem. We're also told he's looking for the kingdom, which indicates he's awaiting God's redemption. There's this long line, again, going all the way back to the Old Testament of saints looking for God's work, God's hand. And we're told he goes to Pilate. This is the Roman governor in the first century in Palestine. Pilate, we've already looked at, a little bit incompetent. I would argue he's probably more competent than we think. It's just that the Jewish leaders have Pilate right where they want him. And we've talked about that historically. And he asked Pilate for permission. And there's some historians that say, oh, that would have never happened. Because the normal practice is the body would rot, decay on the tree, and animals would take the bones. Uh, but not in Palestine. And we know that because in 1968, there was a coffin, lack of a better word, found of a crucified victim. His name was Yohanan. He was in his mid-20s. And we know he's crucified because the nail was still in his ankle bone. But it tells us that the family had a right to bury their son. And so we know that this could happen and was allowed. And Pilate wouldn't need to have done this between three and five p.m. Why? Jesus dies at three. At five, uh, the sundown, that's the beginning of uh, Shabbat or Sabbath, the holy day of the week. And no one is to work on Sabbath. Uh, traveling to Israel, you never want to get in the Shabbat elevator because the Shabbat elevator on Shabbat or on Sabbath only goes one floor at a time. <laughs> I've waited for many people. It's time. Where are they? Oh, they got in the wrong elevator. Yeah. Uh, you're not to work. That's not forbidden. It's forbidden even today. Uh, the Sabbath is holy. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And it was observed. And, and we, we see that because this is another problem here. Either he's hired help or he's involved, but Joseph of Arimathea is going to be considered unclean. He's had con, uh, con contact with a dead body, which is significant as a member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, he's, he's made huge sacrifices here. Don't miss this. One, he's taken a risk, a political risk. I mean, 
<laughs> Pilate just took out Jesus. You want to be next? Just ask the disciples. They scurried out like lights on a cockroach, right? And, and furthermore, there's a risk with the Sanhedrin. He could lose his position. That's a lifetime appointment. That's the, the in crowd. He could lose that as well as being ostracized socially. He's ritually impure because of what he is doing here. And there's a financial loss. We're told elsewhere in the Gospels, this is his family tomb that he's had carved out of the limestone. It's, I'm sure it was very ornate. In fact, we know in the Greek it's clear it's a very special tomb. It's an aquasolia. It's not just any tomb. This is one very nice family tomb. I kind of wonder what did the his wife think about him using the tomb, right? Uh, and and the, the chance of losing that tomb because of what he's done, I mean, it's taken a long time and Joseph is no spring chicken, right? Uh, he was planning on using that down the road. And we're told, notice the women are following. It's the Sabbath and it says the women in verse 55 had accompanied Jesus from Galilee. They followed, they saw the tomb. They need to know where Jesus is being buried. This is not a family tomb. They live up in Nazareth. So where is he being placed? And I love the next line. And how his body was laid in it. A woman's work is never done. Right? <laughs> These guys, let us take care of it. We'll deal with that on, on, on Sunday morning. First time we can come back. Uh, you get this idea uh, here. And we're told who they are later in the text in verse 10. It's Mary Magdalene. It's Joanna. Mary, the mother of James. And some other prominent women who have ministered to Jesus and the disciples throughout the last three and a half years. And then notice the text. It repeats it again. It is on the Sabbath. It's the second time. This is so significant. Uh, I, living in Dallas years ago, even on Sundays, you seldom see people out, at least in the morning, because you were expected to be in church. It was the Southern thing to do. Right, uh, and in, in, even in Jerusalem today, uh, you do not work on the Sabbath. I mentioned the elevators. Same with the coffee machines and the hotels. They're, they have tarps over them. You can't hit the button on the machine. That's working. Uh, it's a very bad day without coffee, but you try to survive. Deuteronomy 21. Why is it significant, though, that the body's taken down? Because Deuteronomy 21 says, when someone is convicted of a crime by death and is executed, you can hang him on a tree. His corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him the same day. You will not defile the land of the Lord. That body's got to come down. It's got to be done before nightfall. This is a quick job. It's, it's hurried. And that's why the women are observing because they're going to complete the task. And they bring these spices and perfumes. Not to embalm Jesus. No, 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 no. The, the Jews had a two-stage burial. They would place the body in the tomb. This is in the first century. They placed the body in the tomb. And a year later, they would gather the bones and put it in a box. I know that sounds a little morbid, but that the, gave a one-year grieving process. So what they're trying to do is to curtail the stench, the decay. Interestingly, they won't need to worry about this because Sunday's coming. <laughs> but what it does tell us is the women and Joseph have no expectation of a resurrection, right? None. And, and the Sabbath, 
on Saturday was to be a day of rest, but I can about assure you, I'm preaching from the white here, not the black letters, but I, I can assure you they didn't rest. Friday night, Saturday night, can you imagine the, the, the emotions? Shell-shocked, sorrow, guilt, remorse, anger, fear, abandonment, despair. The what-ifs and the why-lords had to be swirling in that room. In the tsunami of emotions, they had forgotten that Jesus had announced his resurrection. Did you forget standing outside Lazarus' tomb? Did you, did you forget about the widow and her son from Nain? Or Jairus' daughter, that Jesus rose from the dead? But more importantly, he, he told you he would raise from the dead. The only thing these disciples could recall was the horror of what they had just witnessed. The cries, the disfiguration of their beloved teacher. The agony Jesus endured, his piercing words while hanging on the cross, and their betrayal of him not even their leader the great loudmouth peter stood by <laughs> you know it's so easy in the midst of serving christ that we forget to listen to pray and to love him the cares the concerns of this world so can easily distract my wife can tell you this many times on the day that she, she's going to work, she said, hey, remember that the end, there's some leftovers. That's for you and the kids tonight. Uh, make sure you heat that up. She'll come home and says, well, how is the stew? And I'll look at her blank. She goes, oh, no, you forgot. I said, we had peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> she goes, I knew you weren't listening to me this morning when I told you. It, it's so easy to get distracted, but a man or woman of perfect faith comes to God in the midst of great crisis. No matter the weight of thoughts, failures, hurts, disappointments, the believer clings to the Lord's promises. I love the Puritan writer John Boyes. He stated that the resurrection of Christ is the amen to all of the Lord's promises. And sadly, these disciples in the, the wake of shock, hurt, whatever, that Saturday, that, it wasn't a day of rest. There were many discussions and tears shed in that room on Saturday. Well, chapter 24, verse 1 of Luke says, Now on the first day of the week, every gospel writer tells us it's the first day of the week. Everything's going to be turned upside down. What was once Saturday becomes Sunday as the day of worship to, to commemorate every Sunday Christ has rose from the dead. At early dawn, John tells us it's still dark. I mean, these, they, they didn't sleep that night. They've been waiting to go to the tomb. And it says, and this, they come to the tomb, they bring their spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. I don't know how they thought they were going to roll a massive stone away. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood beside them in dazzling attire the women were terribly frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground but the men said to them why do you look for the living among the dead he is not here but he has been raised 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered and at the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again? This is chapter 9 of Luke. And the women remembered his words. First day of the week, it's significant. This would have been between 4 and 5 a.m. They would have got up. They would have been at the tomb. Sunrise is at 620 Again, John tells us it's still dark. And there's another reason why to wait until Sunday. And again, it's the Sabbath, which the text tells us. But also, we're told three days. You say, where do you get three days? Well, first century, they considered part of a day a day. So you got Friday evening, Saturday, and Sunday morning. Three days. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Why is it significant? Because three days was a sign of a day of salvation. Listen to the words of Hosea 6, an Old Testament prophecy. It states, come let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive, revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. It's significant. That's why Jesus talked about the sign of Jonah. This three days is very important. And in verse two, you have the first hint of a resurrection. Because the stone has been rolled away. It's been stated the stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out and so we could get in and see that the tomb is empty. In fact, it's when John goes into the tomb, he recognizes this isn't grave robbers. I mean, the napkin over his head of Jesus' head was rolled up neatly. And it says he sees all that. And what does the text tell us? John believed. This is it. And so we could get in. And and more troubling than trying to figure out how that stone's going to be rolled away, it's the next line in verse 3. They couldn't find the body. I mean, how do you lose Jesus? Oops. Right? This is not good. (laughs) Talk about, no wonder they're perplexed. The word means totally confused. It's, It's what a term you use for volunteers for junior hires, right? The first outing. They're perplexed. But, but their emotions change because all of a sudden they meet these two men, these angels. The text tells us they're, they're, they're wearing dazzling attire. It's the same word used for lightning. It's shazam, right? It's the bling bling. I mean, they got it. And, and later we see two two angels in Acts 1 when Jesus ascends. Why two? Wouldn't one suffice? (laughs) Well, Deuteronomy 19, another Old Testament text states, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense. Two validates the message. This one has raised from the dead. The women are troubled. It's the natural response. We saw that with Zechariah when he saw Gabriel. We saw it with Mary. We saw it with the shepherds when they encountered the angels. It's the same response. It's one of shock. It's one of fear. And, and the text is that the living and the dead, this contrast. And they ask, why do you look for the living? A rhetorical question is very significant in ancient historical literature. When you see a rhetorical question, it's meant by the writer to counteract any objections that might be made to the document. 
And usually the writer then will answer it, and he does. In 24.6, Jesus records, he is not here, he has been raised. In other words, uh, he's raised from the dead. You don't need to worry. It's valid. It's true. And again, the, the text saying has been raised, it's a divine passive. It's like saying we are so blessed, implying God has blessed us. This implies God has raised his son from the dead. And in verses 6 and 7, we're told here that it's not here, but remember how he told you again. This is chapter 9, where Jesus told those in Galilee, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and on the third day rise from the dead. It's not a new message. There should be no surprise. From the beginning, Jesus has talked about uh, his desire to defeat sin and death. And, and I love it that Luke says it is necessary. 18 times he uses that word in his narrative. 12 of them are unique to Luke because he's constantly stressing as he's writing to Theophilus, which we were told in Luke chapter one, that this is true. This is accurate. And God's plan has laid this out from the beginning. And thus twice we're told they remember. No earthly power, no decree or satanic ploy will thwart God's edict. Human memory's a little faulty, isn't it? In fact, I was just reading this recent research. They said we forget four important facts daily. And on an average, an adult forgets 14, well, 1,460 items in a year. That research is from, well, I can't remember. But anyway, no. <laughs> Isn't that great? These early disciples may have forgotten the Lord's words, but Jesus has not forgotten them. Aren't you glad he didn't forget? Oh, yeah, it's day three. I got to get up. Or, no, I don't think I want to go to the cross. I forgot to do that. Our Lord is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, covenant-remembering God. Our Lord will not suffer from amnesia, have a glitch with his outlook calendar, or just be too busy. Not only will he remember, he will deliver. This week I came across this statement, this reading on why the Lord delivers. Listen to this. It's so powerful. He is the first and last, the beginning and the end. He is the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He is the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. He always was, he always is, and always will be unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. The world can't understand him. The armies can't defeat him. The schools can't explain him, and the leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him, the Pharisees couldn't confuse him, and the people couldn't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him, Hitler couldn't silence him, and a postmodern world can't replace him. He is light, love, longevity, Lord. He is goodness, kindness, greatness in God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. His ways are right, his word is eternal. His will is unchanging, and his mind is on us. He is my redeemer, my savior, my God. 
and my peace. He is my joy, my comfort, my Lord. He rules my life. I serve him because his bond is love. His burden is light. His goal for me is abundant life. I follow him because he is the wisdom of the wise, the powerful of the powerful, the ancient of days, the ruler of rulers, the leader of leaders, the overseers of overcomers, the sovereign Lord of all that was and is and is to come. For the believer, when we fail, he lifts us up. When we fall, he forgives. When we are weak, he is strong. When we are afraid, he is our courage. When we are broken, he mends us. When we are hungry, he feeds us. When we face trials, he is with us. We face persecution, he shields us. When we face problems, he comforts us. When we face loss, he provides for us. When we face death, he carries us home. He is God. He is faithful. We are his and he is ours. God is in control. We are on his side. And that means all is well with our souls. That's our God. This is all possible because of what happened on an Easter morning. And the resurrection guarantees us, and if you're following along in your notes, there are three things that I want to tease out today. These, these guarantees are better than any craftsman tool, L.O. Bean, Vustoff, or hydro, hydro Flask are going to promise you, I can assure you. The first of these is it guarantees salvation. The resurrection is the heart of the gospel. This makes Christianity unique. The system is not based upon human ethics or some philosophy. Our faith is directly tied to the resurrection. Christianity begins where all the world religions end, and that's a death, and it's guaranteed with the resurrection. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, without our resurrected Savior, our faith has nothing special to offer to the world. If there's a dead Savior, there's no Savior. No, but Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you placed your faith in this one who is victorious over death? The clock is ticking. You're not, you're not promised eternal life here. And there's only one means and that's through Jesus. Bend your knee. Bend your knee. Secondly, the resurrection guarantees power. Only through the resurrection of Jesus can a relationship with the Lord be possible. But it's what Paul says, it's the newness of life. Adrian Warnock just recently wrote a book, Raised with Christ, How the Resurrection Changes Everything. And he argues that what the Spirit does for believers today is only possible as a result of the resurrection. And he states, the single greatest need of the church today is to connect to the resurrection power of God seen in the book of Acts and is mirrored through the church history in revivals. We, as believers, <laughs> I wrote, the followers of the risen Savior should not walk around as defeatist. There's no moping allowed as a child of God. Sorry not going to work. Followers of the risen Savior should not fear men. What can they do? Take our physical life? So have it. You can't take my eternal life. It's secure with my Father. Followers of the risen Savior should not worry. The living God promises to provide, care, and sustain us. Philippians 3 
Indeed, I count everything as lost. This is Paul who had it all together. He says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For the sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, get this, and the power of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our salvation. It guarantees the power of living today. And here's the the third, it guarantees hope for the future. 2 Corinthians 4, he who has raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus that brings us to you into his presence. 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, this is the text we read earlier, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Charles Spurgeon said it well, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee of salvation, That tomb is empty. That empty tomb tells you it's a guarantee. There is life for this uh, here on this side of eternity. And it tells us there's hope for the future. Our hope is an assured expectation of a guaranteed result. Let me say that again. Our hope is an assured expectation of a guaranteed result. Why? Because he is not here. He is raised from the dead. Father, thank you for an empty tomb. We can travel all over Israel and find tombs where there's these bone boxes, but you're not going to find one for Jesus of Nazareth. We thank you for the guarantee, the power, and the hope that comes because that tomb is empty. Lord, this morning, if there's someone who does not know you, they're, they're missing out not only in eternal life, but here now, a relationship with you. We as followers of you have so much to be grateful for. And it stems from your son coming to earth, dwelling among men, dying on a cross, being buried, and rising from the dead. We thank you in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ.